The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded during the 2019 Convivium Irenicum at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. The theme of the 2019 Convivium is Reforming Justice, Protestant Wisdom, Economic Freedom, and Modern Injustice. Speaking to the theme of Reforming Justice, in this session, Kyle Williams presents a paper on the topic of corporations. All right, well, thanks, Brad, and thank you all for being here. Um, the topic, uh, my topic uh, today is, is the business corporation. Um, and uh, I'm hoping to give a little bit of a survey of uh, theories of corporate origins and what that might have to do with rights and responsibilities of corporations. Um, so I'll just go ahead and get started. Uh, the way that we think about corporations could justly be described as schizophrenic. And this diagnosis does not apply only to us today. Consider the fact that the United States was founded uh, on British colonies that were formed and governed by corporations. The Massachusetts Bay Company and the Virginia Bay Company being only the most prominent. Early Americans, nevertheless, were suspicious of corporations for their great power and their potential uh, for not only economic but also political dominance. They were associated in the minds of the Founding Fathers with the abuses and excesses of the British Crown. So the framers of the Constitution decided not to confer the power of incorporation on the Federal Congress, lest the sins of the Father be visited upon further generations. The Federalist impulse was to leave corporate charters to state legislatures, where they could be more closely regulated and supervised. Even still, under the protests of James Madison and um, Alexander Hamilton, or I'm sorry, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, uh, under the leadership of Alexander Hamilton, the federal government almost immediately violated the Constitution by chartering the first uh, National Bank of the United States in 1791. Such Hamiltonian power grabs went a long way toward cultivating further suspicion of corporate power in the early republic. Now, the long history of American corporations could be measured here in miniature. The revolutionary generation bequeathed an economic system that relied on the pragmatic proliferation of corporations at the same time that it produced a vital critique of corporations. State legislatures produced charters at a rapid pace between the 1780s and the 1830s until Andrew Jackson, riding a wave of populism into office, sought to rid corporations of special privileges and inspired the passage of so-called uh, general incorporation laws across the country. So the proliferation of corporate forms played no small role in the growth of the market revolution and industrialism in the United States. It was, as one historian has put it, the North's peculiar institution. So also the wariness about corporate power became a vital part of American political life from Jackson to the populist revolt of the 1890s to the New Deal of the 1930s to the new left movement of movements in the 1960s and 1970s. It was this latter movement of corporate protests, which included boycotts, protests at shareholders' meetings, and even bombings that gave us the phrase corporate America, which entered into the lexicon almost solely as a term of abuse. Wendell Berry, whose own associations with the left tend to go underappreciated, defined the corporation as a pile of money to which a number of persons have sold their allegiance. Quote, unlike a person, a corporation does not age, he said, 
It does not arrive, as most persons finally do, at a realization of the shortness and smallness of human lives. It does not come to see the future as the lifetime of the children and grandchildren of anybody in particular. It cannot experience uh, personal hope or remorse, no change of heart. It cannot humble itself. It goes about its business as if it were immortal with a single purpose of becoming a bigger pile of money. Now, this characterization of the instrumental and usurious function of the corporation packs a punch, I think, in the age of shareholder value, but it was neither the first nor the most um, evocative critique. Large integrated firms and trusts, which began with the railroads and communications industries of the 1860s and 1870s, had spread to most sectors of industrial manufacturing by the turn of the 20th century. And these conglomerations of capital and bundles of labor relations were novel institutions that um, evoked monstrous metaphors in the colored pages of Puck and Judge and in the fiction of Frank Norris. The octopus became the most notorious. The metaphor of animality expressed viscerally the un uncertainty and anxiety that corporations aroused. As the ramifications of the 1886 Santa Clara County decision, which extended constitutional protection for corporate persons, became more widely known at the turn of the century, corporate personhood itself evoked the freakish. The New York Times quipped that there is a certain aphorism to the effect that a corporation has neither a body that can be kicked nor a soul that can be sent to perdition. The institutional economist John R. Commons would later press the English language further, imagining unkickable bodies and undamnable souls. Quote, while the corporation has no soul, he wrote in the legal foundations of capitalism, yet it has a mysterious will somewhere that acts like a soul. The spiritual nature of corporations has not gone unremarked, particularly from those who have made a name for themselves as partisans of so-called free enterprise. Consider the words of the late Michael Novak. Quote, for many years, one of my favorite texts in scripture has been Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is not, no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. I would like to apply these words to the modern business corporation, a much despised incarnation of God's presence in the world, he said in, a, in a, an address. Um, in a volume called uh, Toward a Theology of the Corporation, he went on to weave his own sacramental tapestry with all, <laughs> with all of the style of a suburban business park. There were seven sacramental signs of grace in the corporation, he said, including creativity, liberty, and social motive, among a variety of other things. In these ways, Novak wrote, corporations offer metaphors for grace, a kind of insight into God's ways in history. <laughs> How should we think about corporations? A pile of cash, a monstrous octopus, a metaphor for grace, an extension of state power. All of these are inadequate in different but important ways, I would submit. But they have the, the virtue of getting us to think about what corporations are. We, we live in a moment where there's a great deal of excitement and consternation about corporations, but very little clarity. Whether the matter is corporate political contributions, regulation, healthcare, labor, markets, global development, climate change, so-called social justice issues, any number of other issues, the function of the corporation is called into question on all sides, but very little attention is given to the form of the corporation itself. So it's, it's my argument that an important step in bringing clarity to this discussion 
is to consider what corporations are. In other words, if we can understand more clearly what corporations are, then we might understand more clearly what they are to do. Uh, as it stands now, our understanding of corporations suffers from two related tendencies. And, and the first is an incoherent account of corporate personality. And the second is a faulty understanding of the relationship between corporations and markets. So in, in the time that I have here, my, my plan is to give attention to these two categories and, and focus um, on an episode in the late 19th and early 20th century when the corporations first emerged in American industry and the ways in which different theorists and intellectuals sort of struggled with this and how they uh, formed or failed to form their own theories of the corporation. Um, and then I wanna sort of, um, so I'm gonna focus on the, this historical context. I wanna focus on some of the theoretical contributions and then I kinda wanna close with some su suggestive um, conclusions that are by no means uh, conclusive that the um, title, How to Think About Corporations, is not that I have that figured out. It's more of a... Um... Hey, Brad. It's more that I'm, I'm struggling myself to, to learn how to think about corporations, so hopefully um, you can offer your critiques, and uh, this will be beneficial for, for me as well. Bureaucracy, Max Weber argued in an essay of the same name, was the historical exception up until the late 19th um, 19th century, when it became the lifeblood of the modern state and most advanced institutions of capitalism. It was technology, and particularly the technologies of communication and transportation that called for such organizational transformations. Today, it is primarily the capitalist market economy, Weber imagined, which demands the official business of the administration be discharged precisely, unambiguously, continuously, and with as much speed as possible. Normally, the very large modern capitalist enterprises are themselves unequaled modes of strict bureaucratic organization. Following Weber, the rise of large vertically integrated corporate organizations has been seen then primarily as a technological innovation. So, so the great uh, business historian Alfred Chandler Jr. explained the emergence of the professional managerial class and bureaucratic managerial hierarchies as uh, products of business volume. In the case of industrial manufacturing, it was rapid increases in throughput, the rate at which a product moved through the manufacturing process that led to multi-unit plants, which required administrative coordination and managerial hierarchies, which once in place became permanent sources of power and became further um, specialized, leading eventually to a separation between those who owned the firm and those who operated it. The rise of the large corporation permanently altered the structure of the economy as a whole. Now, it's difficult to overstate the degree to which this technological and organizational revolution provoked a crisis in American life. Agrarian populists asserted that corporations supplanted God's natural governance of the economy with centralized pricing structures. And furthermore, that monopolists unduly influenced politics in ways that benefited the capitalist class, thus silencing the voice of God and favoring the wealthy over farmers and producers. Individualism appeared on the, way, on the wane, so extensively have the people become organized in corporations for almost every social purpose, wrote one commentator in 1897, that it is feared the integrity of the individual as, a, as the unit of society within the state has been seriously impaired. In matters of morals, too, corporations were suspect. Muckrakers like Upton Sinclair and Ida Tarbell found the rot of corporation and all kinds of malfeasance in some of the largest industrial corporations of the day. The sheer size of corporations perceived in the bureaucratic army of managers uh, employed, for example, or the architectural uh, abstractions of new glass and steel skyscrapers gave the impression of coldness and aloofness. 
It didn't help that you had figures like J.P. Morgan or Van Vanderbilt who would say things like, I don't owe the public anything or the public be damned, uh, thus forever earning the epithet of robber barons. The Gilded Age came to a close with a great merger movement in American business where more than 1,800 firms disappeared into consolidations of which the majority were aimed at limiting competition and establishing concentrated economic power. Henry Adams registered the feeling in 1896 with typical dourness, our American so-called society is simply Wall Street and nothing else, he wrote in a letter. The, Amer uh, the corporate reconstruction of American capitalism produced three intersecting intellectual problems. The first was the problem of markets. Uh, Alfred Chandler Jr. wrote that modern business enterprise took the place of market mechanisms in coordinating the activities of the economy and allocating its resources. This was the transition from the proprietary competitive stage, this is, the, this is from a historian named Martin Sklar, he theorizes this, that the, the, the corporate reconstruction of American capitalism was a transition from the proprietary competitive stage in which the basic economic unit uh, was proprietorships, partnerships, or closely held corporations to the corporate administered stage in which the dominant economic unit was the large integrated firm. The effect was that a large array of economic activity came to be organized not by the market mechanism, but by the coordination of managers. The rise of the large corporation was the biggest blow to free markets up to that point. Corporate capitalism challenged many of the fundamental assumptions of classical liberalism. The primary, primary one being that economic power was a product of free, fair, and competitive markets. As one political scientist in the 1950s put it, the chief virtue of a competitive market in practice is not necessarily that it leads to economic efficiency, but that it constrains private economic power. In the evolving giant corporation, managers possess great scope for decision-making unconstrained by market forces. The second challenge to classical liberalism concerned property. Corporations did not fit easily into tr traditional notions of property. One of the things that corporations were really good at was creating concentrations of capital for a variety of reasons. The unintended effect was that the number of people who owned stock in large corporations grew rapidly. Even as a relatively small number of managers uh, controlled the firm, the number of people financially interested in the firm could be limitless in theory. The result was a separation of ownership um, uh, from control or control from interest. This posed a range of problems, and I'll highlight just two of them. The first had to do with legitimacy. Why do these managers have the right to control these large, powerful institutions, and who will keep them in line? And the second had to do with ethics. If control and interest were no longer united in one person or one small institution, what motivates the manager? What motivates the investor? Another way of asking this question is, where has the Protestant work ethic gone? Or are capitalists going extinct? These were questions that were quite pressing at the time. The rise of what John Dewey called the corporate age replaced the individual proprietor as the basic economic unit with an institution, splitting up economic rationalities in ways that institutional economists were just beginning to understand. Uh, now, the final challenge to classical liberalism was personality. Human beings whose personhood was natural were being overshadowed by corporations whose legal personhood was fiction, or were they fiction? Some doubted whether that was the case at all. Um, jurists and legal theorists wrestled with the question of corporate personality for several decades beginning in the late 19th century. Uh, there was a rich literature on these issues going back centuries, but the, the question remained whether that literature was relevant at all to conditions of modern capitalism. As one commentator put it, the facts have run, overrun theory. 
In between the state and the individual have appeared a great variety of corporations, some of which rival the state in the influence that they exert in society and in the perfection of their organization. So I want to dig into some of these uh, theor theorists who are really, um, from my perspective, they're really mining early modern uh, theoretical texts, medieval texts, uh, even, even uh, classical texts in their attempt to produce a sort of modern theory of uh, the way that corporations relate to the state and to individuals. Now, corporate personality, corporate personhood is something I think we all kind of are familiar with, or at least we've he heard of it in passing because of uh, certain uh, recent Supreme Court cases, such as the Citizens United decision and the Hobby Lobby case. Corporate personhood in the 20th century really becomes a, uh, a very technical language of the courts in uh, matters of adjudicating corporate constitutional rights. But in the late 19th and early 20th century, corporate personhood, corporate personality was used in other ways. It was used in, in matters of legal and political theory. And it was quite, um, it, it was quite a fecund concept. And it's interesting to see the ways in which they th think about how personality shapes rights and responsibilities of institutions. That, that language, that sort of school of thinking is in many ways gone from our uh, intellectual life. Um, so I'm gonna dig into a little bit of that. In their attempts to explain the social and political standing of corporations, theorists at the turn of the 20th century engaged in a project of recovering and reinterpreting early modern political and legal texts, medieval canon, common law, etc., etc. The output from Italian, French, German, English, and American authors was voluminous and defies simple summarization. One of the common problems had to do with origins. Where did corporations come from and what created them? The animating force behind many of these dis disparate projects was the conviction that if it, could if it could be discovered what a corporation is, it could be deduced what a corporation ought to do. In other words, corporate rights and responsibilities, even law and public policy, are connected to corporate's ontology and origins. Personality was an indispensable category for understanding corporate origins. The, the term has posed a number of difficulties, no less in corporate's uh, legal thought than in the doctrine of God. It was Boethius's definition, of course, that a persona is a naturae rationalis individua substantia, that is, an individual substance of a rational nature. Aquinas takes up Boethius's definition in, in the Summa, commenting further that it implied something singular, subsisting of itself and separate from all else. If the Boethian definition of... Um, of persona expressed individuation, the more traditional usage was something relational, primarily. Like the Greek prosopon, it originally referred to the mask of stage actors which represented uh, various persona. Roman law found it to be a suitable word to denote uh, the subject of civil rights and duties. The latter was one who could be a party in a legal dispute, one who could, so to speak, act in a legal drama. Accordingly, it was by no great stretch of the imagination that he could be termed a persona. According to Thomas Hobbes, corporations were a kind of fictional person created by the state. There are a few things he wrote in the Leviathan that um, are incapable of being represented by fiction. A church, a hospital, uh, perhaps a colony or a joint stock company could be represented by a legal entity, um, as a legal entity by an artificial personality. Hobbes contended that legal status was something conferred to the institution or piece of property by the power of the state. Corporate personality then was for Hobbes derivative of the state's personality, which is itself the ultimate fictional person. As he memorably put it, having too many corporations on hand could be a problem. 
quote, which are, as it were, many lesser commonwealths in the bowels, bowels of a greater, uh, like worms in the entrails of a natural man. This is what uh, came to be known as the concession theory or the franchise theory, namely that the rights and privileges of incorporation derive from the state. This view of the corporation tended to prevail under conditions of special privilege when charters of incorporation were rare or when social life was more regulated. But what may have been uh, a defense of absolutism or a description of the incorporation of the British East India Company, for example, fell short of social life at the turn of the 20th century, or so argued proponents of a rival theory um, of the corporation, the so-called real entity theory, who said that corporate personality, just like a corporate will, was a natural phenomenon of social life and it required no permission from the state. Instead, they argued the state, by means of incorporation, recognized what already existed. Its uh, chief proponents were the German legal historian Otto von Gierke, whose work on the German law of associations was published over five decades in the late 19th and early 20th century, and the English jurist uh, Frederick Maitland, who helped to popularize Gierke's work for an English-speaking audience. Uh, Gierke, who apparently rescued the work of Althusius, speaking of Althusius, from obscurity, sought to construct a theory that would assure for all groups what he called an organic place in the structure of civil society. Althusius's model of the state as a series of associations, uh, which included the family, the Genossenschaft, the fellowship, the local community, and the province, proved to be useful for Gierke. Now, Gierke looked for a model of the corporation, or the fellowship as he called it, in the medieval towns, guilds, and other social organisms whose origins were not found in the creative action of a centralized state and whose character was not ultimately contractual. Gierke employed the term universitas, which had organic overtones, rather than the term societas, which implied the contractual unity of individuals. Gierke was Hegelian. Now, Maitland called the corporate fellowship a living organism and a real person. Maitland, G.D.H. Cole, and Harold Lasky, other British pluralists of the time whose influence was felt strongly in the U.S., sought to create a third way between centralized state socialism and liberal capitalism by, by carving out a space for social and political institutions that would exist between the state and uh, provide decentralized uh, locations of power within society as a bulwark against uh, an all-absorptive state. Industrial corporations were just one of the institutions which had the potential to display this kind of communitarian consciousness and collective will. As Maitland put it in 1900, quote, those trusts that convulsed America were assuredly organized bodies which acted as units. And if ever there was a group will it was displayed, uh, that was displayed in this world, assuredly, assuredly they displayed it. Now, finally, in contrast to this uh, fiction theory on the one hand and the real entity theory on the other was what became known as the partnership theory. It, it denied the notion of a real metaphysical group person, offering instead corporate personality as an extension or a figurative expression of the contracting parties that made up the corporation. As Morton Horowitz has demonstrated, the partnership theory had become entrenched in American legal thinking by the time of the 1886 Santa Clara County decision. So easily could charters of incorporation be had in the decades following the general incorporation laws and during a time when so-called enabling laws began to, began to acid wash of the rights and responsibilities of special privilege that the corporation came to be seen more easily as a kind of contract. The consensus opinion was put this way, quote, 
Private corporations are associations formed by the voluntary agreement of their members, such as banking, railroad, and manufacturing companies. Uh, this viewpoint recognized corporations as legal entities separate from workers, investors, managers, anyone who would be involved in the, in the institution. Um, but it nevertheless understood the incorporation of a in corporate entity or some corporate person as a convenient mechanism for what would otherwise be achieved by a collection of contracts. This is the corporation of the Societas that, that Gierke was so opposed to. Uh, such a theory became the dominant uh, understanding of the corporation in the 20th century, although there are still objections made in some quarters of political theory, one of which has been articulated recently by David Seepley, whose work some of you may, may know of. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit um, further. Um, corporate personhood became an incredibly productive way of thinking about the rights and responsibilities of social institutions. As it, uh, as it pertained to the practice of law, however, most of this philosophical reflection became a muddled mess by the time it arrived in the United States. Corporate personality has been used primarily here as a tool for the expansion of constitutional rights. And legal thinking has often uh, been self-contradictory uh, and complacent. It was no wonder that by the 1930s, one legal scholar called it the endless problem of corporate personality. Uh, it was John Dewey who has most often been pointed to as a theorist who shifted the problem of corporate theory and effectively bookended the personality debate. Um, he pleaded uh, in, a, in a widely circulated article in the 1920s uh, for the discussion about corporate personality to be purged of all, uh, and this is his list, popular, historical, political, moral, philosophical, metaphysical, and theological ideas. Uh, let other people discuss this, but, but let legal, uh, legal professionals determine at law the exact content of the corporate personhood. And for Dewey, as a proponent of legal realism, the corporate person... Uh, quote, signifies what law makes it signify. The word person should have no further implications borrowed from any other intellectual tradition except the singular fact that this, quote, unit has those rights and duties which the courts find it to have. In other words, the, the theories don't really matter much when trying to determine the legal rights and responsibilities of the corporation. Um, there's a few things that I wanted to say about David Seepley's points on this, but maybe I'll save that for the Q&A. Um, instead, what I want to do is, is move on to what replaced this sort of robust debate about corporate rights and responsibilities um, that, was, that was very focused on, on corporate personhood. Um, corporate institutions were separate entities everyone agreed, uh, but their relationship to society and the state remained doggedly unclear. Uh, in any case, it wasn't something that could be discovered by what some, deri some derided as corporate metaphysics. Some scholars have described what happened to the corporation as a story of uh, privatization, but it seems to me that this misses the point, not least because no theory of the corporation ever understood them to be public, uh, entirely public anyway. A different way of describing the problem is that the corporation came to be seen no longer as a person, but rather as a piece of property. Uh, in, in the case of the large publicly traded firm, the shareholders were no longer described as owners in a manner of speaking, as analogous to the ownership status of proprietors or partners, but they were seen as owners of corporations in fact. It was the New Deal uh, that established at the federal level the corporation as a piece of property owned by and for the benefit of shareholders. This property regime produced an incoherence in corporate theory that we really haven't recovered from. 
So in order to dig into this, I, I want to focus mainly on uh, one person uh, in the time that I have left. His name was uh, Adolf Burley. He's a really fascinating character. Uh, came out of sort of New England stock, uh, son of a minister. Um, really brilliant, um, brilliant guy. He, he was homeschooled, by the way. So. <laughs> his his father was a missionary to American Indians, and um, so he was he was taught at uh, taught at home. But he he was a member of one of uh, Roosevelt's brains uh, brain trust in the early 1930s. And, and while many scholars have looked at John Dewey's article as being the sort of seminal. Uh, um, thing that, that acted as a solvent to, to so much existing corporate theory. It's my opinion that, that Burley and the sort of regulatory transformations of the New Deal is, is, what, is what did it. Um, for his part, Burley was equally dismissive of the traditional theories and the concession theory in particular. He, he derided both as old confusions that still plague us. Quote, the doctrine which 10 years ago was sacrosanct today becomes an obsolescent survival, he wrote in 1928. And with it falls in large measure uh, the doctrine of governmental creation. If the nature of a corporation is the nature of the individuals const um, constituting it, there is not much chance for the claim that the state has done much towards creating that nature. End quote. Instead of focusing on the question of the corporate entity, Burley reoriented the question around financial transactions and contracts, what Maitland called the greediest of all legal categories. Although Burley would later go on to favor the use of federal charters to rein in managerial power, in the 1920s he, would, he went so far as to suggest that state charters that made drastic changes to governance could be abrogated by the courts in favor of the contract rights of shareholders. <laughs> For a rising generation of new liberals, the political question of corporate personality was traded in for the economic question of property. Like Dewey, Burley thought that the older corporate theory was trapped in the past. In the 19th century, generally speaking, corporations were small and shares were held by investors who were likely enough to live nearby. And so the interior workings of the firm were of secondary relevance. But in the early 20th century, relationships within the firm became increasingly complex. And as Burley put it, problems now revolve about uh, financial relationships between various participants, such that, quote, for one question um, of corporate entity, there are a thousand questions of stockholder rights. The new situation called for new language. When Burley looked at the corporation, he saw a field of social relations uh, that existed within the institutional structure of the firm itself. And these relations, relations were between managers, directors, workers, security holders, and other investors who were defined by corporation law, and increasingly in the 1920s by a diverse array of financial instruments. For Burley, these relations were a part of a dynamic process in which different groups used the structure of the firm for their own advantage. This corporate process was not simply an economic or legal problem. It was also and primarily a sociological one. And for Burley, the primary question that drove his project was about power. Who gets to exercise power in the corporation and how do they do it? The, the relevance of this question was becoming clearer every day. So he, he, uh, what, what he really does to make a name for himself is he writes a book with an economist named Gardner Means, published in 1931, called uh, The Modern Corporation and Private Property. Uh, this is a really excellent book. If you're interested in corporate theory or the history of corporation, uh, you should check it out. Uh, it, the Time magazine called it the Bible of the New Deal. Um, 
He says, although, and he said this in an oral history interview, although we didn't know it then, we were pounding out the principles on which the securities and exchange legislation uh, would be enforced uh, today. Now, between 1927 and 1931, the main objects of study for Burley and Means was corporate power and responsibility. Uh, the location where those two things met was property. Uh, the authors noted that under the conditions of the modern industrial corporation, property had been radically transformed. Uh, no longer was the predominant mode of economic activity carried on under the auspices of the proprietorships and partnerships and closely held corporations. Now those who provided capital to corporations were large in number and dispersed. Those who controlled corporations were very often not the ones who provided that capital. There was, they said, a separation between ownership and control. Now, this has been noticed, noted before by other, by other scholars, but Berlin means make the separation of ownership and control the most fundamental problem. The new corporate economy had transformed the property relations of capitalism, such that those who invested capital were in many cases no longer involved in the process of, process of managing or controlling it. This is, it's interesting because this becomes sort of the foundation of this quasi-socialist, post-capitalist social theory that they believe that, um, that really takes off in the mid-20th century, where they believe that the corporation is the foundation of a new post-capitalist future because it separates the logic of uh, the capitalist ethic, or at least that's what they thought. The separation of owner ownership and control appeared to Burley and Means to represent both a threat and an opportunity. On the one hand, increasingly, management was able to delegate to itself unchecked power, such, such that, uh, such that uh, it was poised to become, quote, the new princes and economic autocrats of industry. A specter of absolutism loomed, loomed over the new concentrations of capital. The foil of old European politics was not incidental. Uh, autocracy posed a threat not just to the efficiency of corporate capitalism, but also to the integrity of liberal democracy. But if there was a danger, there was also possibility. Quote, the owner of industrial wealth is left with a mere symbol of ownership, Burley wrote, while the power, responsibility, and substance, which have been an integral part of ownership in the past, are being transferred to a separate group in whose hands lie control. The new corporate regime had reshuffled the power, responsibility, and motivations of the old liberal and proprietary capitalism of the 19th century. And this suggested the possibility that the, corp the corporate system was no longer a system of private property, and that the individualistic pursuit of profit had reached its twilight. Uh, contained in the modern corporation and private property is an obituary for the liberal free market. Monopoly and uh, oligopoly were no longer exceptions to the normal functioning of the market, Berlian means argued. They had become the modus operandi of a new corporate system. In an array of tables and charts, means showed that the 200 largest corporations in the United States, as of January 1930, controlled nearly one half of all non-banking corporate wealth and about a quarter of the national wealth. And this was no accident of the crash of 1929. Concentration was a trend throughout the 1920s as a result of mergers, acquisitions, and higher rates of growth among the largest firms. At the same time, stock ownership had become widely dispersed. It was typical that in large firms, the bulk of shares were owned widely with a substantial minority held by a single interest. This dispersion of ownership correlated to corporate size, too, with an increasing amount of private savings going into securities markets. At the same time, um, about half 
a large portion of wealth uh, for the first time consisted of interest in business uh, over which no one individual owned a majority part. Uh, Burley and Means uh, may have overstated the degree to which the 19th century economy was governed by supply and demand, the invisible hand, the natural law of the market, but their point stood. The language of Adam Smith and the 19th century political economists had, quote, ceased to be accurate, they wrote, and therefore tend to mislead in describing modern enterprise as carried on by the great corporations. Now, they meant a few things by this. One was that a large portion of economic activity took place now under the auspices of corporations and not among the mass number of, um, uh, of, of uh, competitive individual units. Another fact was that pro private property had now been split apart. Wealth no longer consisted in tangible goods and capital, but rather in the ongoing concern of the corporate organization. All of this meant that the old theories of market equilibrium and rational economic behavior were no longer as useful for describing the conditions of corporate capitalism. As Means would later put it, quote, the modern corporation has undermined the preconceptions of classical economic theory as effectively as the quantum undermined classical physics at the beginning of the 20th century. Burley and Means instead relied upon the categories of institutional economics and the language of sociological analysis to make sense of the contemporary moment. For Burley and Means, the separation of ownership from control did not mean the separation of shareholders from management, simply. To admit the latter was simple enough. Many other social commentators had noticed the emergence of the managerial class um, with the rise of the large industrial corporation. The relationship between shareholders and managers, after all, had long been discussed as one species of the principal-agent problem. Now, control, in their view, meant something more complex. Burley noted that a small group of people could, under certain circumstances, uh, gain control over a corporation, even without holding positions as directors or upper-level managers. Control was uh, n not nearly so formal a thing. With the right combination of voting stocks, influence over the proxy machinery, and managerial support, control could be exercised with very little formally recognized power. The concept of control was a sociological term used to categorize a variety of different arrangements in which a person or a group of persons held de facto authority over the operation of the gears of business. Now, Burley would say that this was a sort of cabal of Wall Street financiers in the early 1930s primarily, but he, he would say that other people could, could hold control over these large corporations. The corporate system had to be accepted. This was their view. The question was the terms of that acceptance. The major public policy contribution of the modern corporation and private property was to identify the control element of business organizations as a power center in need of reform. The book spent a great deal of attention on financial reform as a means to make the control element more transparent and accountable. Um, in place of shareholders who no longer possessed agency within the firm itself, they said that they were too ignorant, too passive, they simply did not have the ability to, to do the job of overseeing the directors and managers, uh, Berlin Means looked to the public stock market and aggregate. In the mass of transactions and continuous liquidity, a continuous appraisal of corporate value and efficiency uh, could be made. The ability of the market to make sound judgments on the value of corporations and their stock could, however, be seriously impaired by misinformation or a lack of easily available information. This is what distinguishes New Deal liberals from later uh, sort of libertarian um, 
law and economics theorists who would say that markets are actually very good at self-correcting. They're efficient. They provide uh, rational um, and accurate information. New Deal liberals were very dour about markets, and they were convinced that some governmental institution needed to prop them up to make them work. The, uh, the book called for more transparent financial disclosures, not only from banks, but also from corporations whose stock was traded on the public market. What was needed was greater availability of information and restrictions on the ability of, direct, the ability of directors and managers to influence the price and sale of stock. Now, the financial reforms of the New Deal, which were founded on many of the insights of the Burley and Means thesis, created what I call a, a market proprietary regime for corporations. So no longer are corporations seen as a sort of social, a social organism uh, or, or even theorized as a social organism who, who may have uh, a pro profit motive, yes, may have a, uh, a purpose of providing goods and services to the community, yes, um, but, um, but still have certain obligations. Uh, they're, they're seen primarily as, as pieces of property within a sort of larger financial system. Uh, um, while historians have often noted that the Securities Acts made uh, disclosure of financial information a hallmark of a corporate accountability, few people have really given much attention to how the New Deal established at the federal level corporations as pieces of property owned by, and generally speaking, for the benefit of shareholders. Uh, and this is one of the things that I was sort of working on my dissertation is to bring a little bit more attention to this. Um, let's see, what else do I want to say here? Uh, it's my it's it's sort of my larger argument to say that this proprietary regime of corporate uh, governance is uh, sort of historically forecloses all kinds of uh, more imaginative and substantial ways of thinking about how corporations should function within society. Um, it was a way of um, reconciling the corporate age with the liberal ideology of uh, property ownership. The Securities Acts, of course, were not the first to contemplate shareholders as the owners of corporations. Such notions had long, long existed in tension with theories of corporate personality at the state level. But by establishing a federal agency charged with the task of enforcing the interests and claims of shareholders, the New Deal helped to channel the corporate social function into narrower terms, terms that were more financial and market-based. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.